Welcome to the Parental Development Podcast. I'm Leah. And I'm Becca. And we're two sisters, one with kids. And one without. One with questions. And one with answers. One who's a licensed psychologist. And one who just wants everyone to hear what she has to say. We both have a heart to see parents succeed and kids thrive. In this podcast, we'll be discussing a variety of topics, all with the goal of promoting conversation and learning. Thanks for joining us. Let's chat. Hey, everybody. Welcome back to the podcast. We are, once again, glad you're here. And we are going to continue on this episode in our beginner level introductory course. (laughs) (laughs) to the ins and outs of attachment. So I don't know about everyone else, but I really enjoyed the conversation that we had in the last episode. I thought it was very informative and I don't know if everyone else felt that way, but I did. did. Well, good. I mean, if it's just you and me, that's, That's true. chit chat with one another. (laughs) That's okay too. Right. So last episode, we got up through, I think, two years of age, two years old. Yeah, Ish. I mean, we took some turns, so we're, we're going <laughs> to... As we tend to do. <laughs> right. We're going to circle back. <laughs> I do want to clarify a couple things, as I usually do. So I was listening back to that episode, and I heard myself say that the person who developed the strange situation, that was her last name. And I was like, well, that is a thousand percent not true. <laughs> no one knew. <laughs> I knew, and I'm maybe some people didn't think like this chick didn't know what the heck she's talking about. Her name is Mary Ainsworth. I don't know. I don't know. I I, I don't know what happened. Our apologies, Mary Ainsworth. That's the correction for that. It's just called the strange situation. Her name is not strange. I, I was know like, what I thought. I remember having the thought. I was like, oh well, that's ironic. Like it yeah, was a str- no. it was strange, and there was a stranger, and her name was strange. I was like, that no. is very what a coincidence. Yeah, her name's Mary Ainsworth. So my bad, my bad. So. Correction. I thought about having Ben go back and like edit it out, but it was like too late. And oh, that would have been a mess. He would not have been happy with you about that. We just fall on the sword when we make mistakes. That's that's that thing. (laughs) The other thing I just want to make very clear is that while I talked about the importance of understanding in utero attachment and then skin to skin contact, I in no way meant to imply. That if you had a stressful pregnancy for any reason, all different levels of stress, that that somehow means that your baby is like damaged or that it's a real problem. Mm -hmm. I didn't mean to imply that. And if you were not able to have skin to skin, which, right, a lot of women that have C-sections are not able to have that the same way. Mm Mm-hmm. That that would imply that that somehow damages your baby or limits your bond with them or changes any of that. Mm -hmm. So that is not at all what I meant. I don't believe that. I do think certainly if you had a very stressful pregnancy for any reason, whether that's work stress or domestic violence stress or just the normal stress of life, two other kids stress, I just want people to understand that that can impact and, and that that is not... That's not happening in a vacuum, I guess, right. for your in utero baby. Mm-hmm. And with good attachment behaviors and systems after that, you can correct that super easily because they're so little. 
it's just important to to recognize that if you have babies that have that kind of stress in utero, that we just would want to pay attention Mm -hmm. and consider that, particularly when we're considering like their negative behaviors. Right. So I wanted to just clarify those two things that that, while very important, I think both those things, does not at all kind of like already set the stage or like you're already behind the eight ball, anything like that, if those two things are true for you. So I wanted to clarify those. Which I guess that would make sense too then if you said considering those issues that may have happened or, you know, in utero when you're looking at possible negative behaviors. In one of the episodes previous, you said you consider behavior like an iceberg, right? So the behavior is what you see above the water and there's stuff underneath the water that's contributing to that behavior. So potentially something that happened in utero, the stress that you may have experienced during pregnancy or whatever, that would just be something that's below the ice that is not visible that could be potentially affecting behavior that you would just want to consider. Yeah. Yeah, That makes sense. Yep. Yeah, absolutely. We just want to consider it again is not a death sentence or like a, oh, well, we (laughs) might as well just give up because, you know, I was stressed when I was pregnant. Not at all. But yeah, when we're, especially the younger there are, and we're trying to figure out like, what is happening? Right. I always go back to like, what was your pregnancy like? Did you have prenatal care? Mm -hmm. Were you stressed during that, during that time? How was your, what's your birth story like? Mm -hmm. You know, if there was trauma at birth, that can disrupt attachment. So there's so many different things. It's just a, it's just a, it's just a factor. It's just mm-hmm. a variable. Right. It's not the the final say in it. So just wanted to clarify. Very good. Okay. Yes. All right. So I want to talk, I think, about like the types of attachment. And then this will lead, I'm sure, into lots of other <laughs> <laughs> side conversations. <laughs> so you basically have either a secure attachment, and we'll talk about what that means, or an insecure attachment. And then within the insecure realm are three different types of insecure attachment. Okay. Okay. So secure is just what it sounds like. (laughs) It is a secure attachment. It is a reciprocal relationship that baby thinks someone is going to take care of them. They are safe. They are secure. They are okay with themselves. The world is a safe place. All those things. So that is secure. We'll talk about that, I think, kind of uh, a little more throughout the episode, but that's kind of the, that's the goal. Right. That's what we want everybody to have a secure attachment. Mm -hmm. They generally are the healthiest in developing relationships and as they age and all that kind of stuff. Okay. So within insecure, the first type is avoidant. So this happens when in infancy and, and, you know, those first three years of life, there is a rejection that happens from the caregiver. Okay. They're just unresponsive. They can't be bothered, that kind of thing. And so that baby experiences some anger and rage around that. And the way they learn to cope with that is they just avoid the need for nurturance. They are just more avoidant in nature. So if you think about that strange situation, an avoidant child would avoid their mother when she returned to the room because they don't believe that that mother is the one that can comfort them. Mm-hmm. And so there's an avoidance of those, that close nurturing reciprocal relationships. Okay. Okay. And you will see this by like age three or four. If, if someone is significantly has an avoidant attachment, they will just avoid those close relationships. Makes it hard for them to bond with other people. They're just avoidant of their attachment figures. Okay. Okay. So then there's an insecure anxious attachment. This is when there's inconsistency in that response. 
in infancy, the cries, Mm -hmm. they are responded to inconsistently. And so sometimes my mom comes when I cry. Sometimes she doesn't. Mm -hmm. And I can't quite figure out, like, I can't quite figure it out. Mm -hmm. Which, if you think about, I don't think it's a hard leap to think, like, that would create some anxiety. Right. Of, like, is she going to come? Is she not going to come? Yeah. And so they alternate between this, like, anger that she's not coming and neediness of, like, but I really need her. Okay. And so it's this very, like, back and forth behaviors. These would be kids that, like, would be super needy, like, demanding attention, clingy, that kind of stuff. Mm-hmm. And then as soon as you get to them, they're like, I don't need you. Mm-hmm. And they back off. Mm. It can be very confusing even as a caregiver of, like, well, I'm, now I'm here. I'm giving you what you want and you don't need it. It's because they don't trust that. Right. That because it's been so inconsistent. Mm-hmm. I don't think I said in the first episode, but – all of this is on a continuum, a very big continuum of attachment and its disruption mm-hmm. that happens. And so one of the ways, a less nefarious way that an anxious attachment pattern could happen is something like a mom that is struggling significantly with postpartum depression. Mm. And so like it is so debilitating that sometimes she just can't get out of the bed mm-hmm. because her own mental health. And so, right, sometimes she would be when she's feeling better – she would be super responsive to that baby. And then there are other times where she just she just can't do it. Mm-hmm. And so that inconsistency some, sometimes can tweak an attachment mm-hmm. center and create some anxiety right. and an anxious style of attachment. That makes sense. And then the least healthy, um, the most concerning attachment style is called a disorganized attachment pattern. This type really happens when there is pretty significant neglect or abuse from the primary attachment figure. Mm-hmm. So if the primary caregiver is the one abusing or significantly neglecting the infant, that creates a disorganized attachment pattern. And it is just like it sounds. It is all over the freaking place mm-hmm. because there is such uncertainty of if I cry, are they going to come hit me or are they going to come give me a bottle? Mm. Are they going to leave me in my crib or are they going to pick me up? Are they going to feed me or are they going to let me go hungry? It's completely out of whack. And so like in the strange situation, you will see sometimes they don't cry if mom leaves because that doesn't mean anything. Mm-hmm. Sometimes when they when she comes back, their behavior is very disorganized. So sometimes you would see even like young kids backing up into the mom, mm-hmm. like for comfort instead of going to her front, like for a hug, mm-hmm. they'll turn around like back into her, which, you know, from a psychological perspective perspective is just a safer way to get close. Mm -hmm. So you just see all of this disorganization and that continues throughout childhood. These kids have like pretty significant tantrums and rage and they're just dysregulated almost all of the time because their little systems Mm. don't have much of any semblance of safety and security because nothing has ever been safe. Whereas the other ones at least a portion of the time mm-hmm. they're taken care of. Yeah. These kids usually don't have any basis to believe mm. that they're going to be taken care of and safe and people are going to care when they have a problem. So these, not surprisingly, I think, these are the kids that r- struggle the most. Mm-hmm. And disorganized attachment is the hardest to treat and can take the longest. And this can create them more significant behavior problems kind of down the road is that disorganized style. Yeah. That hurts my heart. (laughs) I know. 
because you think about like, and I've worked in the school system, so I've seen some of some of those kids and they're in trouble all the time. And then, yep. and I think our education system just in general is broken, but they're obviously their approach to those kids doesn't take into account any of what you just said, <laughs> which is right. also heartbreaking. Right. Yeah. When you work with these kids, you hear about the stories and you think, gosh, they're just terrible. And then you work with them and you realize, oh, they're just little kids. They're just little kids that don't trust Mm -hmm. of soul. Mm. Because ultimately, that is what attachment teaches too, is trust. Right. I can trust Mm -hmm. my caregiver to help me and take care of me. And the, the more disrupted that attachment pattern gets, the less trust there is. And again, if you think of the disorganized pattern, if I can't trust my own mom to take care of me, why the hell would I trust anybody else? My own mom wouldn't take care of me, or my own mom hurt me, or my own mom left me. So why would I think a teacher is going to do what I need, or a pastor, or a friend, Mm -hmm. or a foster parent, or it doesn't matter, a therapist, fill in the blank. Mm -hmm. I don't trust anybody. I am on my own. It's me. Mm. I take care of myself. Everybody else can just leave me alone, which does not bode well for you in childhood. Mm -mm. It it just, you can just play that out and think of all the different ways that that creates problems Mm -hmm. of, I don't trust anybody. I'm on my own. I can only trust myself. And so, yeah, it causes just significant disruptions. And all of those attachment styles, other than the secure one, creates a little bit of distrust, mm-hmm. right? Because even if it's inconsistent, like, I mean, I can trust her sometimes, mm-hmm. maybe the majority of the time, but there's enough that I don't know that I can trust it all the time. Right. And so as you think of kids' behavior and what that looks like, you can see that a lot of what we see in kids who have these attachment tweaks are things like um, when they get hurt in childhood. Almost all kids, a secure attachment if someone gets hurt They're going to seek their attachment figure. Mm -hmm. You know, Sawyer falls down. He's going to seek one of us, even just to tell us what happened and have us acknowledge it. Like, are you okay, bud? Yeah, good. Okay. Or smooch it or whatever. Mm -hmm. That's a um, comfort-seeking behavior. Kids with attachment disruptions don't generally do that. They will – they'll hurt themselves, sometimes hurt themselves significantly, and they don't need anything from anybody. They're good. So – you see it in like little ways as it comes out. But mm-hmm. for me, because this is what I live and breathe, I see all of those things as just attachment behaviors mm-hmm. that need some help and support. Mm-hmm. So like I said, we all have we all have an attachment pattern. It stays with us forever. There's a questionnaire, an instrument. It's called like the adult attachment inventory. Mm-hmm. It's something that has to be administered like by a professional, but mm-hmm. um, adults can tell what their attachment style is or attachment pattern. There's a lot of research to show that based on what an adult's attachment pattern is, we can pretty well predict what the attachment pattern their child is going to have because it, it influences so much how you parent. Right. Yeah, that's what I was going to ask you. I was like, how much of an influence is that on your parenting style unconsciously, right? A ton. Yeah. Yeah. Is that something that you could, if you were to have that assessment done and then proactively, I would assume there are things that you could do to yeah, counteract your own issues from childhood? Yeah, just like anything else. And that's what we've talked about a lot. 
I just have never called it attachment, but I believe right. that's what it is. Of yeah. Like all of these experiences throughout our childhood have shaped us in different ways. Mm-hmm. It's very research-based. We know that that impacts how we parent. Right. We know it. Mm-hmm. Again, not to mean that you can't tweak that or make changes in that, but from a professional standpoint, it gives us a lot of information about like, oh, okay, that makes that makes sense. Here's areas we need to watch for. Here's where this parent is going to need some additional support, all those kinds of things. So we're talking like more maybe like worst case scenario of like, you know, when it gets all disrupted and everything. But our attachment patterns impact us all the time. And I believe like attachment influences like everything we do. So we talk some sometimes at work where, right, if I'm in a leadership perspective or a leadership role, if I go on vacation for two weeks – my colleagues and I will joke about like everybody's attachment stuff is going to get kicked up because mom went away. <laughs> it's true where sometimes people will really struggle with that if different things happen. Same with like within your relationships, within your romantic relationships or your friendships. Your friend does something to you that you didn't like. Very likely it's tweaking your attachment system and what you think about yourself and people in the world. And that is influencing how you respond to that. You know, if you always think people always leave me Mm. and then you're in this relationship, that's the story that you are very easily going to tell yourself. Mm -hmm. Even if that friend would say like, that's not, I'm not, I didn't leave you. I'm not going anywhere. I just had to go do this thing or something. So it's, it's just so widely integrated into how we, how we are and how we function Mm -hmm. both as a parent and just as a human. Right. But certainly it impacts how our how our kids function. Mm-hmm. I talk about attachment a lot, clearly, <laughs> <laughs> because I just think it's so important that we understand when I talk about those internal working models mm-hmm. that get really deep, deep integration into our nervous systems and our beliefs. I just think it's so important to keep those in mind when we're dealing with our kids. So a secure attachment The belief about the self is I am good and wanted Mm -hmm. and and worthy. Mm -hmm. Caregivers are responsive to my needs. They're sensitive. They care about me, all that stuff. And the world is like a a generally safe place. Mm -hmm. And so that's what we want for kids. We want them to get as close to that as possible. Different insecure attachments. The thing I hear the most about themselves for young kids, I hear I am bad and I am naughty. Mm-hmm. And for older kids, teenagers, I hear I'm unlovable and I'm unworthy. Mm. And again, these are things that happen in the first three years of life. Mm-hmm. And then this is a teenager thinking like, I don't deserve good things in my life. Mm. This person can't be trusted, all that kind of stuff. This is also one of the reasons, if you remember that very, one of those very first episodes, why I don't use those words right. for kids. I, d- I will not use those bad, naughty, all those things because the kids I work with mostly are insecure attachment kids. I, I don't want to contribute to that. They already believe that about themselves. Mm-hmm. And so, again, if we think of that attachment relationship, where that comes from is – Right. We don't have to teach babies to cry. They just know they're supposed to cry and that's how they get their needs met. Mm-hmm. And so if they cry and nobody comes or they come in consistently or they just it just can't be trusted, it makes them think there's something wrong with them. Right. That I must be the problem mm-hmm. because they're not coming. Mm-hmm. And so that must say something about me. And so then you get into the I, I'm bad, I'm unworthy, 
Um, a lot of times these kids, they will have like a really good experience and then they will sabotage it at the very end. I hear parents a lot like, we had a great day. We went to Six Flags or we went to the zoo or we stayed at home. We played games all day. It was fine. And then he like ripped things apart. Mm-hmm. A lot of times that happens because they don't believe they deserve the good thing. Mm. And so they they sabotage it. They just say like, mm, no, I don't trust this. This is too good. Let's get back to normal. Mm-hmm. Let me just cause a ruckus. So that Ugh. that deep-seated belief that there's something wrong with me leads to significant behavior problems. Mm-hmm. And they never come out and say like, well, I did that because I didn't feel like I deserved it and la, la, la. That's not what's happening. <laughs> it's very subtle and under the surface and mm-hmm. only really through like therapy and having some conversations about that. That comes out with kids a lot. I mean – I can think of examples that I've seen similar to that where you're like, yeah, we had a great day and da 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 da. And then what the heck just happened at the very end? And I understand what you're saying that because of the insecure attachment, that they feel like they don't deserve that good thing. And so they're just going to wreck it before somebody else can wreck it for me. Right? Yes. Is mm-hmm. that, and maybe you don't know the answer to this question, is that just their brain protecting them? Are they conscious of what they're doing or is it just, I'm not going to let somebody take it from, do you know what I'm asking? Yeah. There's usually no conscious awareness of it, depending on the age. Sometimes you can bring some conscious awareness to it, but usually there's no conscious, which is why attachment is very hard to treat Mm -hmm. because, right, language doesn't develop until you're three. Right. This is developed prior to three. It's all Mm nonverbal. It's all implicit memory. And so getting to it can be very difficult, especially if you're trying to use language. Can you dive a little bit deeper on what you just said? This is all implicit memory. Yeah. Explicit memory is memory I can talk about. Mm -hmm. It's memory that has language attached to it. It's things that I consciously can remember. That's explicit memory. Mm -hmm. Implicit memory doesn't have language attached to it. And so you cannot have explicit memory before you have language. Okay. Right? Like you, that part of your brain, you don't have language. So you can't attach language to something that you mm-hmm. didn't have a language center when it happened. Right. And so that's why when we talk about these internal working models, they truly are the internal, like deep, deep seated beliefs because there's no language. Right. And so how do you get to a kid's inner belief about themselves when they don't have any language attached to it? They just believe it at their core. Like, it's not even, I don't even think about it. That's just who I am. I'm a bad kid. Nobody cares about me. The world's unsafe. That's so heartbreaking to me. Yeah, it's real challenging. One of the other kind of very nerdy things about attachment, which I'm happy to share with people, is, (laughs) you know, you have a right and a left side of your brain. Right. We talked about that. The structure that connects those two sides of your brain is called your corpus callosum. Mm Mm-hmm. Which lets us switch back and forth. Uh It lets us go from right to left. So that lets us get from emotion to logic, back to emotion, back to reasoning, all those things. Okay. Kids with an attachment disorder or disruption, their corpus callosum is smaller than it's supposed to be, meaning they have a harder time like switching, switching sides. And so that's why for many of them, they are all right side. They have a really hard time getting to the left side of their brain mm-hmm. because their corpus callosum is actually smaller 
than it should be. Was it just stunted in growth because of the disruption in their attachment, or do we know why that yes. is? Okay. Yeah, it's attachment that neglect or abuse or uh-huh. deprivation or whatever causes it causes that okay. uh, structure to not develop the way it should. Okay. And so it's small. So again, when we talk about behavior and that kind of thing, we've talked about this many times. I need my kid to develop the left side of their brain. Mm-hmm. So they can start to use those skills. Well, you can develop the left side of their brain if you can't get to it. Right. Right. Then you have a really hard time and you tend to just continue to be all emotion. Mm. So to your original question, yeah, it's all it's all unconscious and there there is little to no awareness. Now I've worked with teenagers that part of our work that we've done is giving them that awareness mm-hmm. and giving them the word. So when you do that, do you when things are good, do you get nervous that or feel like it's not going to last and so you feel like you're uncomfortable so you just need to like pop off and they'll say like, yeah, I guess sometimes I do. So sometimes in therapy, and again, I wouldn't necessarily – it's harder to do with a younger kid, obviously. Mm-hmm. That's a complex conversation, but you can bring some awareness to it. But it is just their core belief about themselves. And then what happens – is that belief gets reinforced mm-hmm. over and over and over again, right? We tell them they're bad. Their clip always is on red in school. They're always in the principal's office. They get spanked all the time. They're always in trouble. And so we reinforce that belief that you are bad and naughty. Sometimes we tell them that. Based on their behavior. Based on their behavior. Mm. And so it creates this self-fulfilling prophecy of, Mm. yep, you believe you're bad, so you act bad, then people tell you you're bad. So then you believe you're bad more, so you act bad, so people tell you you're bad more. Oh my gosh. It might just be that I'm really tired today. I could cry. (laughs) (laughs) I could cry. Because I think like, oh, I could cry about that. These poor kids. It's very unfair. Mm. It feels very unfair. And, you know, I think... I mean, I think this is true, not just because of the work that I do, but, you know, you just feel like, oh, that kid never had a chance. Mm-hmm. That kid never mm-hmm. had a chance. Mm-hmm. And there are extreme situations that I think all of us would believe that. But that's what I believe about even like, you know, on the low end of the spectrum of this type of work or just a kid who has a secure attachment and is has some dysregulation problems mm-hmm. of Why are we contributing more to that? I don't ever want to contribute to the thought that a child would believe that they are bad and unworthy of love Mm -hmm. and care. If that's even a possibility in the way that I parent them, I don't want to do that. Mm -hmm. I've got to find a different way. Because, yeah, like you said, just the thought that I might (laughs) make a child feel that way is – Terrible. It feels terrible, let alone my own child. Right. I mean, I wouldn't want any child to feel that way. But I certainly don't want my own child to think that Mm -hmm. or feel that way. So, again, this is just why I do what I do Mm -hmm. because I I know that this is a possibility, that this is how kids are developing throughout childhood and into adolescence. I I just know it. Mm -hmm. And so I want to do something different. Well, gosh, like I, (laughs) again, I could cry talking about it because it just makes me so sad. It hurts my heart. But knowing that, 
And I think just as a society, we focus so much on behavior, right? Like that's like yeah. the behavior of your kids or the kid that you see in Walmart who's in Walmart at 10 p.m. and acting a fool. And you, and so we judge the kid based on behavior or whatever. I mean, knowing what we've talked about up until this point on the podcast, but specifically what we've just talked about in this first 15 or 20 minutes, I feel like that should make us a more compassionate, <laughs> just a compassionate and kind people. Like, yeah. it's not about the behavior. Like, I'm going to get a t-shirt that says that too. Pick up your babies. And it's not about the behavior. Like, there's some, <laughs> there's something else going on. Right. And that we would do that to the most vulnerable. Yes. People, the most vulnerable among us. Yes. Where I can go there with you for an adult of like, you need to take, you, you need to mm-hmm. take response. But even then, I, yeah. I don't go there too far because of just who I am, but I can go there a little bit with an adult. These are our most vulnerable kids. Yes. And we think that in many other ways, they're our most vulnerable. We need to protect them, but not from this. This is just kind of. The way we do it. We want to define what, and we're going off on a rabbit trail, so we're gonna, I'm going to put us back on where we're going. But, like, you want to define, you want to personally define what, quote, unquote, protecting them looks like. You don't want to take into account all of this that we've just talked about. Do you know what I mean? Yeah, because they look fine. Right. Because there's no physical. Th- and that's why this trauma attachment, it's all so hard because... They don't have a Band-Aid. They don't have a cast. There's no blood. There's, you know, they're not in a wheelchair. There is no physical representation Mm -hmm. of this damage. They're just broken. There's none. (laughs) They just struggle. Mm -hmm. And so it would be, in some ways, it would be easier Mm -hmm. if they had some physical representation of it that you could see and know like, oh, Yep, you see a kid in a wheelchair, you're not you probably are going to have some different expectations of them or know right. like, oh, they're they're struggling. They're they have all these things. These kids they don't and they are very good at making you think they don't need anybody or anything. Mm. Which then pushes people away even more to right. say, well, pff, screw you then, you're on your own. Mhm. Right? So that was just their belief about themselves. <laughs> oh, gosh. So <laughs> then if we get into their beliefs about like caregivers, other people, mm-hmm. right? A secure attachment would be, oh, we talked about that. They're they're responsive to me and they're going to meet my needs. Yeah, An yeah. insecure attachment does not believe a caregiver is going to respond to their needs consistently. And so they're untrustworthy. Mm-hmm. And again, if my caregivers are untrustworthy early in life, I cannot trust other people. Mm-hmm. And so this is one of the reasons I really love working with these kids. It's also one of the reasons it is very challenging to work with these kids. Because if you think about, we have said over and over, we are wired for connection. Mm-hmm. And especially kids, they are wired to seek connection, attention, mm-hmm. attunement, all of that. At the same time, that connection and attunement is dangerous for them or has been dangerous for them in the past. And so as much as they seek it, they fear it. Mm-hmm. And so many times, the closer you get to these kids, the more dangerous you become. And so they like push away, mm-hmm. sometimes physically, like 
legitimately push you away mm-hmm. because as much as they want you to be close, want a relationship with you, like you, love you, all those things, you're also a little bit risky. Mm-hmm. And so again, something in their brain just says like, eh, you, mm, you're getting too close to this one. Mm-hmm. Remember last time what happened? You probably should get away. And so it creates this very like roller coaster of a ride of this like, come close to me, get away from me, come close to me, get away from me. And it, that's really challenging to parent. It's really challenging to work with professionally. It just, it creates a, a real like instability in them. They don't trust their teachers. These are kids who in school don't need help with anything, won't acknowledge they don't understand something, believe their teachers are out to get them, all those things. And again, you project that further. We're talking about young kids, but you can project it further into like, adolescence. And mm-hmm. these are kids that are just detached from everybody. Mm-hmm. The flip side of that is they're clingy to everybody because caregivers are untrustworthy. I'll just attach to anybody because mm-hmm. why the hell not? <laughs> these are kids that sometimes like little kids, they will like take the hand of a stranger and they would walk out, out of a store with them. Mm-hmm. When we talk about stranger danger, they got none. They'll go sit on the lap of someone they just met. They will hug everybody. They'll tell everybody they love them, whether they just met them five minutes ago. Mm-hmm. In adolescence, this can turn into into some promiscuous behavior, mm-hmm. some sexually uh, promiscuous behavior, because they will just – anybody that will give them any kind of attention or affection, they will latch onto them in a hot minute. Mm. So again, you have like the spectrum of what that looks like. Right. And you can go either way. The function of it is the same. Mm-hmm. The behavior looks different. Either everybody get away from me or I'll take anybody. Is it one or the other? Or or is that like a continuum too where you have kids that are clingy to everybody, but then maybe at the last minute they're like, nope. It's usually one or the okay. other. Yeah. There's two diagnoses associated with this. And usually those are the kind of dividing line of which diagnosis you get. Okay. Is are you... It's called an indiscriminate attachment, like mm-hmm. I'll attach to anybody, right. versus this kind of avoidance of all attachment figures. So you you usually are one okay. or the other. Okay. Okay. And then about the world, again, we said secure is the world is safe. I'm good. Insecure attachment, the world is unsafe. And what this means is, so as an adult, I generally know like – Yes, the world can be an unsafe place, right? Like there are bad things that happen. We need to kind of right. be smart and protect ourselves, all those things. This is very different. This is everybody's out to get me. Mm. The world is out to get me. And so I, again, I have to take care of myself. So sometimes these kids look like you can have a conversation with them. And if you would hear that child like recall what, that conversation said, they would misperceive a lot of things of, you don't like me, you're coming for me, everybody's out to get me. They twist, Mm -hmm. their perceptions are very off because they just believe everybody's coming for them. Mm -hmm. And so again, their behavior, this whole idea of I'll get you before you get me type of thing Mm -hmm. happens because of that. They just, everything is a battle. Everything is a battle. Mm -hmm. And so that comes from just believing that the world is an unsafe – it's an unsafe place to be. Mm -hmm. I don't 
want to have to rely on anybody. And so I do whatever I can. So what all of this creates is really just a intense need for like power and control. Mm. Now I believe I believe all kids want power and control as we all do. Right. I right. like to have power and control in my own life. It attachment disruptions can create much more intensive power and control needs because it truly is like I have to stay in control in order to stay alive. Mm-hmm. Cuz right you remember if we don't respond to our babies long enough they will die. Mm-hmm. Just because. And so there's this feeling of like, somebody needs to come or I'm going to die here. Mm-hmm. And so the need for control of if I give someone else control over me, they could hurt me or I'll die. Mm, I'm not interested in that. So I have to keep control no matter what at all times, always. Mm-hmm. And so these are the kids that are just, they will dig in for anything. Mm. I mean, like, you cannot tell them nothing. <laughs> if you say sit in this chair, they will sit in the other chair. <laughs> Just because. It's, again, from a parenting perspective, it's really challenging because the function of that behavior is so deep-seated, mm-hmm. it's really hard to get to and mm-hmm. parent in a way that promotes cooperation because you're just going up against really um, significant negative beliefs about everything. Mm-hmm. Okay. I think one of the maybe last things I'll say about this here is obviously all of our goal is secure attachment for our kids. That may get disrupted for lots of different reasons. Doesn't mean you did anything wrong. It doesn't mean you're a bad parent. It doesn't mean anything like that. It means it just is. Mm -hmm. You know, from a personal perspective, when I was born, I had some heart complications at birth. And so I was in the NICU for a long time. And I had multiple surgeries during that time. My mom had three other kids at home, and it was very different back then, too, as far as, like, how that worked and, Mm -hmm. you know, who could be in the hospital and all that kind of stuff. So I was left in the NICU by myself without my parents for a significant amount of time. Mm -hmm. That's just the facts. That's just what happened. I know that's that's just life. Mm -hmm. If you have a sick child and back then to camp in a NICU when you have three young kids at home – I don't know what what you would do now if you, you know, these NICU moms where like you have to decide, like, can you just live up there? I don't know. Mm-hmm. That probably would have tweaked my attachment system mm-hmm. because in those early, early months of my life, my caregiver was not always there. They were there inconsistently. And then I'm in a hospital where my caregiver is changing every eight hours or mm-hmm. every 12 hours. It's disrupted. By definition, I would say my attachment would have been disrupted early in my life. Mm-hmm. I don't think that means I have an attachment disorder. I am not – I mean, I'm probably damaged in other ways. (laughs) Aren't we all? I'm not damaged. But I know some things about myself that I think probably started back then as far as like just some things. Mm -hmm. I tell that story not not for any reason other than to explain that it happens just because life happens. Right. I mean, all kinds of things. I've talked to parents who – don't have very many resources. And so they have to go back to work mm-hmm. two weeks after giving birth and that baby has to go to daycare or, you know, they get deployed right after they, shortly after they give birth. Or mm-hmm. there's just all kinds of things. They have their own mental health issues or 
medical concerns. Right. The reason doesn't necessarily matter. We go to like the abuse and neglect, Mm -hmm. which is the most significant. But this is happening. These continuums are happening every time a baby is born because we all have to live Mm -hmm. and we all have different circumstances. It's just important to know that that is a factor in what is happening in your home Mm -hmm. and in your relationship with your child. I like to think that would then change how you respond to that. Many times our kids' behavior is a function of their attachment, really meaning like they are seeking attachment. They're seeking nurturing. Even securely attached kids, when they're faced with something hard or negative, chances are they're going to seek out their attachment figure or they're going to need extra Mm -hmm. nurturing. One of the key ways I saw this, and I talked to a lot of parents that when the pandemic started and none of us were okay. Mm -hmm. Our kids particularly were not okay. You started to see some like strange, new, unusual behaviors from Mm -hmm. kids. Many times that looked like regressive behaviors. So for me, Lincoln, all of a sudden, he's he was eight, seven, wanted me to start brushing his teeth again. He knew how to brush his teeth. (laughs) He had brushed his teeth for years and didn't have any interest in me in his toothbrushing experiences. (laughs) That was one of the ways he, I believe, was seeking attachment to me in a way that he didn't need before. Mm -hmm. Is every morning he wanted me to brush his teeth and he would sit on my lap and I would brush his teeth. I could hear all the people saying, and I thought about saying, you know how to brush your teeth. Mm -hmm. Like you're big enough, you can brush your teeth by yourself. Mm -hmm. No, I don't have time to brush your teeth. But because I understand this and- I don't say that a ton to my kids because I feel like if they're asking, there's a reason they're asking Mm -hmm. me. But especially if I'm busy or that kind of thing, I can see me kind of pushing that off. Mm -hmm. But that's a very like small basic example of how our kids do that. Of to me, he just needed he needed more from me because he was not okay, but didn't know how to say that. And so he just any way he could get closer to me, he was going to do that. Mm -hmm. And so it was brushing his teeth. Sometimes that looked like looks like kids who regress in like toileting. Mm hmm. They'll start wetting the bed or they'll start having accidents at school or that kind of thing. That generally means like "Mm," their attachment stuff is kicked up. They need a little more for whatever reason. Mm -hmm. Whining and baby talk behavior. Mm -hmm. So kids that are doing any kind of that regressive behavior to me suggests they want the nurturing that we very easily give infants. Mm. And the easiest way to get that might be to act like an infant Mm. because – we would easily give, you know, a baby that whines or cries. We would, we don't tell them like, don't talk like that. You're too big. We mm-hmm. just do the things. Mm-hmm. So any of that kind of behavior, I often view as it's regressive. Yes, but it's serving a purpose for them. It is seeking something from mm-hmm. somebody. You're welcome to tell them that that's not appropriate. That is not going to stop the behavior. You have to meet that need, that attachment need. Mm -hmm. And there's nothing wrong with that. We all have our attachment needs periodically. Mm -hmm. And they're going to have them more when they're younger because it's still developing and, you know, Mm -hmm. they just need more. But many of our kids seek that attachment in ways that we wouldn't necessarily catch. Mm -hmm. And sometimes it's in the ways that we are irritated by the most. Right, yeah. Like, right, whining is a big one. Like, whining just Mm -hmm. drives most of us crazy, including myself. And so that's, I think, how this continues to play out. Mm -hmm. 
like over time, you know, you have a child that has always slept in their bed and all of a sudden they want to sleep in your bed. That to me, like they need to be close to you. They want Mm -hmm. to be close to you. Now that doesn't mean you have to let them sleep in your bed. You Mm -hmm. could, I don't, whatever your, you know, boundaries are around that. But taking note of the behavior and again, what is the function of that behavior? Mm -hmm. They want to be close to you. Mm Mm-hmm. They want more from you. And so meet the need, the behavior will go away. Mm-hmm. That's how attachment plays out like day to day in our in, in my life and home and parenting and all of that is they're going to continue to tell you what they need from an attachment perspective. And if you view it in that way, I think it's easier to think about meeting that need in a way that's actually going to make the behavior you don't like go away. Right. As opposed to trying to squash it or say, like, you're too big for that, punishing it, you know, that kind of stuff. Mm-hmm. That doesn't make it go away and, and actually could be doing more damage if you, if you have a child that truly struggles with attachment-related mm-hmm. issues. Yeah. I think that just in hearing that, what you just said about potentially regressive behavior being them communicating, and we've said before, all behavior is language, so that's them communicating to you that they need something in the same way that when they have a tantrum, it's the same thing. They're communicating something to you via their behavior. Again, it comes back to this is a lot of work. (laughs) It would be very easy for you to tell your eight-year-old, I'm not going to brush your teeth. Go brush your own teeth. Or I'm not going to help you put your shoes on. You know how to put your shoes on. Go put your shoes on. Right. Another word for this, I mean, this is this type of parenting is called gentle parenting. It's called calm parenting. It's called conscious parenting, responsive parenting. All of those adjectives for this type of parenting, all of them imply that the relationship is paramount, right? Would you yeah. would you say that? So, yes, you're old enough to tie your own shoes. But if I take 2 seconds, how long does it really take me to, to help you tie your shoes. It really doesn't take that long. And I know like everybody's stressed and we're busy and I don't have time to help you put your shoes. Yes, you do. Yes, you do. It's a choice that you make. And I guess, you know, some people would say that's easy for you to say back. You don't have kids. But the fact of the matter is it just hurts my heart. And I've said that a lot. Obviously, I'm tired. But it just hurts my heart for a kid to be seeking an attachment, to just be seeking validation that somebody cares about me, somebody loves me, like that's all they're seeking by asking mm-hmm. you to help brush his teeth. And so for us to just, as adults, as grownups, to just be so flippant in shutting that down or dismissing it and thus not meeting his need, mm-hmm. that hurts me. I don't want that for any kid. It would be the same as him coming to you and saying, Mom, I'm hungry. Okay. Mm -hmm. Nope. Not going to do it. You don't need to eat. But he just told you he's hungry. Why would you not meet that need? You would. Of course you would meet that need. This is just another way that he's communicating a need that he doesn't necessarily have language for because it's it happened before he was had language. Right. Right. You were going to say jump in because I'm rambling. I know I am. But it just hurts me. No, (laughs) I... I just, the story I choose to tell myself about that is that parents just don't know. That they just don't know to view that behavior in a way that is not Mm. like enabling, Mm -hmm. right? Because we want our kids to be independent. We want them to learn how to do things. They need to learn how to do things on their own. All of those things are true. So the story I choose to tell myself is that parents just need 
information on yes and sometimes mm-hmm. that means something different. Right. And so I'm not going to brush Lincoln's teeth until he's a teenager. Honestly, it didn't last very long because mm-hmm. he got what he needed. Right. And it was such a different behavior that I think is maybe a differentiating factor right. of if it's something your child has had a skill and a they want to do that. Right, right. And then it changes, then you're probably not looking at like enabling and and they're de- too dependent and all those things. You're probably looking at something different mm-hmm. because they had it and they lost it or they are making a different choice. And so that to me is kind of how I differentiate that. And Dan Siegel and Tina Payne Bryson talk a lot in, I can't remember which one of their books, about we as parents have to be a cushion and a pushing. <laughs> so like there are certain times where we are their cushion mm-hmm. and we will just take all their things. And then there are certain times we need to push them mm-hmm. and encourage them and have them develop those skills. There just has to be a, a balance there mm-hmm. and a again, an attunement to them to know like, that is weird. Why in the world is he asking me to brush his teeth? Mm -hmm. Whereas Sawyer, who never wants to brush his own teeth, (laughs) always wants me to brush his teeth. So for him, that's more of a pushing. Like, nope, okay, I'll brush for this amount of time, then you need to brush. Or you brush first and I'll finish. Mm -hmm. That's different. Lincoln never wanted me to brush his teeth and then all of a sudden was coming and like snuggling up on me with his toothbrush. That's the difference mm-hmm. is, okay, this behavior is a little bit different. Mm-hmm. I mean, yes, it's hard work. We say we say that all the time. Yes, this way is harder. I Yep. Mm-hmm. But the other thing I think is so important, and I say this a ton to parents who I work with for sure, a lot of times if you're willing to put the work in up front, you can avoid many times the negative behaviors that come down the road. So if I had decided not to brush Lincoln's teeth, right, he would have tried to get that somewhere else. And then that could have created different kinds of behavior problems down the road for sure. Because again, the need didn't go away. He just needed to get it met. So that's what I hope people take from this and understand And so I think we're going to leave it here. We went a little long today. As always, we appreciate you and any feedback you have. Um, Otherwise, we will see you next time. Thanks for listening to this episode of Parental Development. If you found this helpful at all, please leave us a five-star review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you choose to stream. And if you have questions that you'd like answered on the show, email info at parentaldevelopment.com. We'd love to hear from you to know that someone else is actually listening. And remember, we're all doing the best we can in this parenting thing. So survive the day and keep the kids alive. See you next time.